Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 16. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed and inspirational author, Ginny Sassaman. She's here to talk about her award-winning book, Preaching Happiness, Creating a Just and Joyful World. Ginny, thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Totally. Yeah. You have basically an amazing book that you published, looking at it a bit and everything like this. is like So your book itself basically is Preaching Happiness, Creating a Just and Joyful World. Yes. You have quite a story based off of how you got about writing this. And this is basically, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a book that's been in your head. You've been wanting to write since 2000, I think it's a 2011 or 2012, if I remember. Uh, probably. It's been floating around in one format or another for quite a while. And you kind of got started with the, uh, the uh, innovative to most, but for those that study it, know about it, about the whole gross national happiness yes. perspective. So do you want to kind of give people a bit of a background uh, about who you are and how you sat down and started writing this book? Gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, uh, I've had a variety of careers, um, but I think that uh, who I am I have always, always really been interested in and passionate about and active in social justice causes. Mm -hmm. And really my whole life, including as a child, really wanting to make the world a better place, really wanting to make the world a more fair place. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I have always been a writer. So I've done a lot of you know, I've marched in the streets quite a bit. I've been an artist. I lived and worked in Washington, D.C. for a good number of years. And I worked um, especially for the group Common Cause, which was a, a, a tremendous experience, a wonderful experience. But I think at heart, I'm a writer. Well, I'll, I'll say a creator because I am also an artist. I just like to create. But I think words are my strongest tool. Um, I think both in writing and um, I can sometimes do a pretty good job from the pulpit or other places in communicating ideas orally as well. I was in D.C. Then I was a full-time artist for about 13 years. Then um, that didn't seem to have enough meaning for me anymore. And I ended up going to uh, the sadly defunct Woodbury College in Montpelier mm -hmm. to get a master's in mediation and applied conflict studies. Okay. But as soon as I finished my master's, I picked up a book called um, Stumbling on Happiness, which really describes my life from that point on. So <laughs> I stumbled on happiness and happiness became my calling. Shortly thereafter, I picked up another book called The Geography of Bliss. The Geography of Bliss is an amazing book, nonfiction. These are both nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, and the book describes the countries that um, are, according to various data sources, rank as the happiest countries in the world. And one of those countries was Bhutan. And I was reading the book and read for the first time about this concept of gross national happiness. 
And it hit me like a lightning bolt. I thought this totally makes sense. Again, given, you know, my activism and my social justice concerns, my concerns about the environment, my concerns um, about income inequality uh, and how I felt like the drive for more and more money seemed to be like ruining the healthcare system and ruining the educational system and all these things. Um, and here is gross national happiness as an alternative. Uh, for those who don't know, the idea behind gross national happiness is it's a much more holistic right. and um, expansive way of measuring and encouraging success for systems like any government or a business. But it, you can also use it as a personal tool um, and how we think about measuring success and well-being in our own lives. And I think it's a huge, huge problem in our country and many others that we kind of define, we collectively define success in more monetary and materialistic terms. So you'll hear on the radio all the time, the GDP is up, the GDP is down. But you know what, if you really examine that, that tells you nothing about how well the people are doing or how well the environment is doing. It means nothing. All the GDP measures is the exchange of goods and services. And, um, you know, the GDP undoubtedly got a huge boost out of Jeff Bezos going up into space. Hmm. But I'm not sure how that contributed to the well-being of everybody else. Right. <laughs> you know, it's right. it's just a false measure. Right. So the gross national happiness uh, measurement and system says, what is it that really creates the optimal systems for well-being for as many people as possible and the animals and future generations. You know, no government can make people happy or should, but it's creating the systems that support that. So if we, you know, if you think about it in terms of your own personal life, mm you might have a measure that you use every day. Like I do a pedometer, 10,000 steps. So that's very concrete and it's kind of fun. But that doesn't tell me, did I get enough sleep? Am I eating well? How are my relationships? You know, am I, am I spending enough time in nature? I mean, there are many, many different things which contribute to an individual's genuine well-being. Mm. And similarly, there are many, many different things that contribute to a collective system's well-being. So I got super excited about Gross National Happiness and ended up being one of the co-founders of Gross National Happiness USA. Um, and am now on the, I'm a past president and I'm now on the advisory board. But then I also started studying personal happiness. You know, it just became my life's work to teach people about these options, that we can change the way governments measure success and that we, which will therefore change how we behave as governments. Mm -hmm. We can change how we as individuals measure success 
so that we can live really much happier lives. People think that in, in, in um, rough times in particular, that it's really selfish to focus on your own happiness and your own well-being. I mean, like, how can I worry about my happiness, you know, when these fires are burning out of control and et cetera, mm-hmm. all the bad stuff. But the truth is that, that the more we cultivate our overall well-being, our happiness, we become more thriving individuals. We are much better able to do whatever the work is that we are trying to do. You know, whether it's raising children, whatever it is, when we can come from a place of the greatest positivity within ourselves, we have the tools. We do a much better job of helping the rest of the world. So that is really why I care about happiness. I care about happiness. I mean, it's nice. I like to be as happy as possible. But I care about happiness because I think it's the best tool we have to save our planet, create a better world for our children. Uh, Do you see this when people ask you about gross national happiness where the GDP could say, well, that's kind of like objective where happiness is subjective. How would you measure happiness? What what would you say to to something like that? You know, that's a really great question. And because I think that the reason the GDP, one reason the GDP is so popular, you know, it was never meant to serve this purpose. The person who kind of created it never meant it as an overall well-being measurement. That's not what it's for, but it's easy to measure. Mm, it's right. easy to measure. Um, and and so it's like, well, the GDP's up. That must be good, right? <laughs> you know, 10,000 steps, that I can measure. Yeah, That's easier to measure than what is the quality of my relationships with other people. Right. Um, but you know what? There's been an awful lot of work done on subjective measurements of well-being, and they hold up to scrutiny. Right. They hold up to scrutiny. And as a result, of, at the very least, of all of these different measurements of subjective well-being, we really know what it is that systems can do to support greater well-being of the people. Right. It's, it's, not, it's not a mystery. Right. Um, So one of the things that's shown up in a lot of measurements in the United States, but not just the United States, pandemic of loneliness. Mm. It's a lot of loneliness, including in Vermont. It's a lot of loneliness Um, and a lot of loneliness in Britain. And Britain responded to this loneliness by creating a ministry of loneliness. Oh, wow. To help come up with programs and systems to help people because loneliness is terrible for people's health. Right. You know, if you want to go back to dollars and cents, it puts a strain on the economy when people are lonely. We don't need to have objective measures. Subjective works well as well. Right. You know, time stamping this conversation is like where we're at now with thinking about the pandemic as a slow moving hurricane that has come through and the resulting 
destruction left behind is in the wake is the a mental health crisis because we've all been in the shared trauma are you are you there's is there a sense of optimism that now that that happiness in in people's own mental health seems to be on the forefront of a stage that has never really seen this level of scrutiny or advoc advocacy for for happiness now that you're seeing it on this side of things yes well i'm um Always optimistic, <laughs> <laughs> or almost always optimistic. Um, but you know, I honestly, Barney, I hadn't thought of it in the terms the way you're describing right now. Uh, but I do think it's true. I do think the moment is ripe yeah. um, to advocate for ways for us to be happier individually and collectively. And and I think the pandemic showed us some of those things. Right. I think the pandemic certainly highlighted the value of relationships uh, and overall health and education. From the pandemic, people uh, learned a lot about kindness mm. and being good to one another, which is one of, one of my, definitely one of my favorite happiness tools. You know, when you are kind to other people, you also feel better. Right. It's a yeah. wonderful... It's wonderful. Kindness right. is just wonderful. Um, you know, a lot of these are like soft values or soft qualities that don't always get the attention they should in like mainstream media, which is going to focus on things like, oh, the infrastructure bill passed today or people won the gold medal or, you, you know, right. not the soft things, which really are the biggest parts of our day to day lives. And so I do think the pandemic shined a light on that, on, on, um, on the importance of love and the importance of kindness and caring and gratitude. Right. And how do you recommend too? cause you were talking in a previous interview, you were talking about that. It's in order to be happy, you have to compare it to being sad. Cause I thought you're talking about it in your book one time where like it, yeah. Not, not that you have to balance. You don't have to be, no. Definitely right. yeah. not. But Living a, a, a life that is as is as thriving, and here's how I define happiness. Actually, I define happiness as a greater sense of peacefulness and inner contentment, as well as thriving and a much greater propensity for positive emotions. But that doesn't mean there won't be plenty of negative emotions too. It's not about being in denial. That's a recipe for disaster, you know, pretending to be happy when you're not. Sadness is absolutely a part of life right. and loss and anger. You know, the, these are all part of the human experience. Um, but it's been my experience that having cultivated these happiness skills in myself as much as possible. And I can talk about how I do that. It helps me bounce back faster. Right. Um, it helps me see the good in the harder situations. You know, and also paradoxically, it gives me freedom to grieve. It gives me freedom to cry. It gives me freedom to be angry because I know I won't stay there. I know I can feel all the feels and then I'll feel sunnier again. Right. 
and then I'll feel sad again. But you know, it's it's not you don't ever get there and stay there forever. You see, you recommend to the people that that read the book as well is practice happiness, like as a skill. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's really like a muscle. Actually, here's one of my favorite things. So this is brain science. And that is this whole concept of neuroplasticity in our brains. It used to be believed that we kind of created all the patterns in our brains when we were very young, I think like three years old. But more recently, it's been realized that that's not true. We continue to create new neuropathways in our brain, like right up till we die. When we persistently and carefully and thoughtfully focus more on the positive, we are wiring our own brains to be happier brains. Okay. When we wallow in the negative, and again, I mean, I'm I'm all for a good wallow every once in a while. (laughs) Just don't stay there too long. We're then also wiring our brains to be more negative. And so what that means is in any in practical terms, in any given situation, you can see the positive and experience and feel the positive, right. or you can see and experience and feel the negative. And when our brains are more wired to be negative, that's where we're going to go. Right naturally but when our brains are more wired for the positive we're going to go to the positive more readily so an example that i talk about in the book which continues to be a real live example in my life so a few years ago i got a diagnosis uh, in my left eye of something called retinal neovascularization which means (laughs) bleeding (laughs) in the retina, which is bad. Yeah, It's very bad. Uh, And it was a shock to get this um, diagnosis. And what that means is without treatment, the eye doctor told me I could lose total sight in my left eye Mm. in a matter of months. Wow. Yeah. So that was a surprise. (laughs) And here's what the treatment is. Every um, six to eight weeks, I have to go to the retinal specialist and get a needle stuck in my eye (laughs) with a treatment. So when I initially got that diagnosis, I was up in Burlington and and it was about an hour's drive home to where I live outside of Montpelier. It was a gorgeous summer day in June, beautiful. And I kept trying to focus on positive. I was like trying to look at the beauty and and it's like, no, this is not going to work. This is not going to work today. Uh, This is really scary and upsetting. And so I spent a couple of days being um, definitely scared and uh, upset. But my happiness knowledge helped me right away because I also know we humans um, we have sort of a natural level of our happiness. When good things happen, the le- if, you know, our happiness goes way up. And when bad things happen, it goes way down. But then it kind of comes back. And I know that even the actor Christopher Reeve, who became a quadriplegic, 
was a happy man. Not immediately, <laughs> you know, but after a period of adjustment. <clears throat> so I walked around practicing being blind <laughs> and saying to myself, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. I'll get there. Yeah. Um, so it did all work out. But what also happened was I wrote, I have a blog and I wrote about this on my blog. And um, I just got an outpouring of uh, love and support from so many different friends. And um, also this medicine, it's very expensive. Uh, you know, there's only four retinal specialists in the whole state of Vermont. Period <laughs> services are very expensive. So, but I had health insurance. So, and it was caught in time. Right. I did have some eye loss, uh, some vision loss. So there, I, I was able pretty quickly within a matter of a few days to find all this meaning in the experience. I mean, I was really touched by the love and felt enormous gratitude. So cultivating happiness allows us to get back to those sunnier days, not to ignore it. I'm not ignoring it. Right. I, I see this doctor very frequently and I may yet lose the vision in that eye. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Right. But nonetheless, um, I could still be a happy person. And do you say, do you talk about it also too about gratitude part of happiness, a skill set, or is that absolutely mutually okay? All right. Yes, gratitude. Gratitude is perhaps the best. Gratitude and kindness are two of the best things that people can do hmm. to in, rewire their brains and increase their own levels of happiness. I have various happiness practices that I do on a daily basis. I write down three things that I'm grateful for. I used to write down more, but then I learned, so there's always more to learn. I learned that um, it's important in this rewiring of the brain to take some time. So Instead of saying, uh, you know, I'm grateful for blueberries, say, I might say, I'm really grateful that we've had enough rain and enough sun this year to really grow a good blueberry harvest, you know, to, to rewire that brain and really, you know, kind of ponder it and, and let it sink in. Kindness, having a very intentional kindness practice is is really good there in, in the book actually there are many many different ways to um practice happiness because we're all uh, unique individuals and different practices will appeal to different people but it is great to do it on a regular basis just like you know you might go to the gym on a regular basis or practice yoga on a regular basis so let's talk a bit about your your author hat Give us a little bit of a of how it went for you to decide specifically on how did it work for you to hone in on this book and how was the writing process for you? Yeah. So it was kind of a two-track thing. Okay. Yes, I was very interested in writing a book. At the same time, in 2013, I was first asked by the church that I go to, the Unitarian Church of Montpelier, to if I wanted to be um, a guest preacher 
one day and preach about happiness. And I said, why, yes, <laughs> because I can preach about this all the time. <laughs> yes. One thing led to another, and I have ended up giving many, many sermons at, at different churches, largely in Vermont, but not entirely in Vermont, um, on various aspects of happiness and well-being, both individual and collective. So that was going on. And then I, at some point I realized that um, I had uh, a, a unique story to tell in the happiness book canon right. because I came into the personal happiness world through the systems door. You know, there's only, there's only four of us who can say we were co-founders of Gross National Happiness USA. Um, so there's only four of us who have that piece of the story. Then this hasn't come up yet, but I did try for a while as part of how can I best get this message out there? I did for about a year and a half or so have um, a store, <laughs> the Happiness Paradigm Store and Experience. And as well as, um, you know, I'd gotten a, uh, certificate in positive psychology. So there is in the happiness world, there's kind of the systems happiness movement. And on the other hand, there's the personal happiness movement. And they don't actually overlap very much. I think they're starting to more, right. but they didn't. And I felt like I was one of the few people kind of standing in both places. So I realized I had a story to tell. And I, I started one book got pretty far into it and took it to a friend who is an editor. And she said, you know, the good news is you're a phenomenal writer. The bad news is you're writing about policy and you can't do that. You're not a policy wonk. And you're writing about research and you're not a, an academic. <laughs> and she said, you have to tell more stories, tell more stories, tell more stories. So I uh, tried to rewrite, that set me back because I liked what I was doing, actually. I liked the book I was writing, but um, I had reason. I really esteemed my friend's opinion. She knew what she was talking about, but eventually I tried it writing more stories. Um, but really, I couldn't let go of the policy or the research because that's all really important to me. So right. I took it back to my friend again and again got, got shut down. So while that was happening, meanwhile, there is a church near Silver Lake State Park in Vermont that is a summer-only UU church, and they don't have their own minister. So they asked me one year to do four different services. And I said, wait, you do know I'm not really a minister, right? And they said, yes, yes, but we want you. So I did four services. The next year, they asked me to do seven out of their eight services that summer. Mm -hmm. And it was halfway through that second summer that I said, oh, this is it. Uh -huh. This is it. This is my book, which then changed the process of writing the sermon somewhat thinking that it wasn't, my audience wasn't going to be just the people sitting in front of me, but that it might be readers right. as well. Uh, and then they asked me back to do another five the next summer. Then I took it. I just went to one publisher uh, because I, I, I know the people at Rootstock. And I went to them and they said, yes, they would like to publish the book. 
so I was assigned an editor. Now, I have spent my life writing and often writing, you know, like writing um, press releases at Common Cause that, you know, my words got edited and edited by this vice president, you know, and by, I mean, I was used to having my writing completely rewritten by other people. And I was comfortable with that, but this was different. <laughs> different because these were my, these were my thoughts and my words, and I wasn't writing them for an organization. This was mine. Right. And so, but I knew, I knew, I was like, I know, I know, writers got to have an editor. Well, oh my gosh, I love my editor so much. <laughs> Amabel was great. I was so tentative and so nervous about working with her, but it turned out that I thought I could just take the sermons and slap them in the book and there you would have it. Right. But that really wasn't true. You know, what I could say in 20 minutes in a book, you know, Amabel would ask questions and I would need to flesh things out. I would need to answer her questions. Um, so all the sermons in the book, they're actually longer than the ones which I delivered. Uh, and also... Delivering a sermon orally, I can cite anybody I want to cite, which I always do. I mean, I always give credit where credit is due. But then when it came time to put it together, it was like, oh, well, um, wait, where did that quotation come from? <laughs> and so a lot, a lot of work went into the end notes. And I uh, like to tell people, I think the book is worth, is worth every penny just for the end notes. <laughs> there's a topic you're interested in, like kindness, just look at the end notes and see the resources there. I mean, they're tremendous resources. But also sermons allowed me to do what I really wanted to do, which was combine personal stories. So the book is full of personal stories because I think that's how people take in information best, but it is also full of research to back up everything that I say. I also ultimately bottom line for me, I wanna inspire people to action. I want people to act, but right. I also want people to have good lives and happy right. lives. We can have good, happy, fun, joyful lives and we can do our part and we can all do a better job of it and we can all be happier. So I want to inspire people when I go and stand in a pulpit and it's time for the sermon. <laughs> I better have something to say. <laughs> you know, everybody is looking at me now. I mean, they might not know what they want, but they might want to learn something. I mean, there's a reason that people come to church. As opposed to life in general, I think people don't like being preached at. <laughs> So, but this is, this is a, an exception to that rule. People don't like being preached at, except when that's exactly what they, what came, they for. came for. Yeah. So a book, you know, I had friends who wanted me to come up with a title that was less um, preachy sounding, which I understand. This is very secular. This is very non-dogmatic, but it is preaching. At what point do you recommend pulling in an editor, whether it be like a, a line editor or, or a copy editor, what would you be your recommendation? 
Gosh, I think that depends on the writer in the book. I mean, I, I have a friend who's been working on a book of short stories and he has not been a writer his whole life. Right. So he has brought in editing help all along the way, help him learn how to craft short stories. And, and so people might want editing early on in the process. I mean, I don't know what would have happened with my, my first iteration of the book uh, if I had just kept going without my friend's advice. Maybe that would have worked. Maybe not. I don't know. In the case of this book, it really was best to have an editor come in at the end after it was all written. Yeah. And I say to writers, find an editor <laughs> who you trust and who is good and right. who gets you and who gets your work. And right. Amabel made it a much better book. Right. Is there a sequel to this in, in the works at all? Because you must have more stories that you could, stories that you thought of after the book was published. I do have more stories. I'm I'm amazed at how many stories. <laughs> uh, there's lots of stories. I have two different ideas of where I could go with right. another book. One of them, I mean, I've really been wondering about the idea of a memoir because there, as I said, there's so much work that needs to be done, and some a lot of it is so hard. And I see people doing such hard work. And I get to make my job happiness. <laughs> How did that happen? I'm interested in that. I would only right. want to write it if there was value in it for readers. Right. Well. So I am thinking about that. I am interested in pulling together a different collection of stories that is not sermons, because again, sermons is great, but kind of limited me in certain ways. Right. But pulling together a collection of other pieces. Have you ever is there any like have you ever thought about doing like a children's book type sides of something like this? I haven't thought about a children's book. That's kind of interesting. In some of the services that I lead, uh, I am asked to do a children's story. I only once did I write that that story myself. I usually find a picture book, mm. um, but. The, those picture books are inspiring and they sh they show me that it can certainly be done in, in a, a meaningful way. But, you know, I haven't ever tried to write specifically for a young audience right? and, and help people out that way. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're at the top of the hour now, Ginny. Do you, so if people want to learn more and, and find your book, uh, happinessparadigm.com, is that the best place to... To find everything um, it, it could be happinessparadigm.com or they could go to the publisher, uh, which is Rootstock um, Publishing and, okay. uh, you know, look for my book on the books page. It is the book is available. You could go to any independent bookstore in Vermont and order it here. You can get it. Like you said, Rootstock Publishing, get it straight here. Um, also, the uh, indiebound.org, you'll be able to get it. Indiebound.org, or, um, you know, I know Bear Pond Books has it in Montpelier, and, you know, you could order it through any independent bookstore in the state. Right. And also, just to, to this is uh, an award winning book. You did win the Human Relations Indie Book Awards. Yeah. I was very and, pleased about that. I think yeah. that's a great award to win. 
Yeah. It fits with what I'm trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for mentioning that, Barney. Yeah, you're welcome. And so thanks a lot, Jeannie. This has been great. And 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 come back, you know, when you get on your second book. So Okay. Well, I'm planning on taking a good chunk of the winter and going south yeah. without my family yeah. to write. Okay. You don't like you you don't like that. You don't like the snow then, huh? No, I like it, but only to a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> About six inches. That's as much as I can handle. <laughs> or January is as much as I can handle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well, thank you. You're helping to inspire me. You know, I think all writers, we sometimes need a little encouragement. So yeah. this has been helpful to me too. Thank you very much, Jenny. 